You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening. Um, as they already introduced, my name is Gary Chaffins, uh, pastor at Grace Community Church. I think I pretty much know everyone, at least for the most part here. So as always, it's a joy and privilege to be at Revolution Church and to be able to share with you guys. Just feel quite at home here. As we begin, let's just go to the Lord in prayer uh, very quickly, one more time, and ask for his help and guidance this evening. Uh, Father, I know that it's been a, a busy day for, for most of us, a lot of things going on, and I just ask for your help and your guidance and your wisdom as we open up your word and we dive into the particular topic that we have this evening I pray that each of us would find some aspect of this that is beneficial and edifying to our life as we seek to live before you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin, I'm going to ask that you put your thinking caps on with me. And as they have already identified, the topic that I've been assigned is looking at the nature of the atonement, uh, looking at the glory of God in the death of Christ, and my, my goal this evening is not necessarily to preach through a specific text of Scripture, although that's my preference. Uh, not doing that is very uncomfortable for me. Uh, but we're going to look at this more thematically, if you will, or topically. Uh, I want to do an aerial overview of this topic of the atonement. Uh, my goal is not to put forth a, a, an apologetic for this. I, I simply want to put forth a positive presentation of the atonement. Uh, not going to handle every objection. I know they exist. If you have questions and those passages that seem to uh, cause you concern, uh, Dave will be around after service to talk with you about each of those. So with that in mind, again, we're, we're, we're continuing on in this series that you guys have been working through, and I love that, that Dave does this every year of some sort this time of year. But we're looking at the core tenets of the doctrines of grace, of Reformed, Reformed theology, also uh, known as Calvinism, as you know. Uh, the core tenets that are is summed up in the acrostic that we know as TULIP. Calvinism stands in contrast, if you will, to the theological position known as Arminianism. Uh, again, two basic contrasting systems that are both seeking to explain how God, by his grace, saves sinners. Both systems profess that salvation is by grace, but both systems understand the nature of this grace very differently. It was just over 500 years ago that the Arminian Christians challenged the Reformers' teaching regarding the, the nature of saving grace. And so this group of Arminians, uh, they, they put together this, this five points of contention against the doctrine of the Reformers. And so in response, the, the reformers examined the argument. They not only rejected it, but they put forth an argument of their own. They countered with, with their five points uh, in response to clarify what they believe. And uh, I, I think that, Dave, you spoke to this, David, uh, the first week. But this is where we get the uh, tulip, the acrostic. The assignment that I have, I believe, is arguably the most controversial of the five tenets of Calvinism, of this acrostic, and that is the L standing for limited atonement. I have never preached specifically on this doctrine. Uh, matter of fact, there was one point in my life I said I would never preach it, and then Dave calls me and asked me to preach it. So now 
I have to go back on my, on my word. But limited atonement, I, I would probably prefer to use terminology such as definite atonement, uh, particular redemption. The question we want to answer as we think about the atonement is for whom did Christ die? That's what we're looking at. Did Christ die for everyone? Did he stand as a substitute for every single person who has ever lived throughout the world and throughout history? Or did he do this specifically in place or in the stead of his elect? Perhaps I could say it like this to, to capture the, the heart of the issue. Does the death of Christ make salvation merely possible for anyone and everyone? Or does the death of Christ secure and guarantee the salvation for those for whom it was intended? The Arminian contention on this issue is this, that they argued that Christ's death did not guarantee the salvation of anyone in particular. That's the position, that it did not secure with it the gift of faith or anything like that. But in their position, what it does is it creates this possibility for anyone to be saved who simply chooses to believe, to exercise their will and believe. So the Arminian, just so we're on the same page, is saying that Christ's death is making salvation possible for everyone, but certain for no one. They say that Christ, that this atonement was a universal atonement. He died for every single human being without exception. But at the end of the day, that death, that atonement, does no one any good in terms of salvation unless the sinner, again, by his will, responds to it, receives it by faith. So we're on the same page. We understand uh, what's going on there in the position. The, the reformers responded to this claim for this universal atonement by stating that the death of Christ was indeed a limited atonement. Not unlimited, a limited atonement. They're, they're arguing that it was particular in its design. That it's intended not for everyone universally, but it is intended for the elect particularly. That's the argument. Therefore, because of this particularity to the atonement, that it will actually secure the salvation for those by which it was intended or who it was intended for. So it's particular, it's definite, it will definitely make atonement. It will actually secure that which God intended it to secure. So again, I hope you see the, the, the contrast between the two positions, and I think I'm representing uh, the Armenian position rightly. The Arminian says, and let me just say this, some of the, the, the most godly people throughout human history and of today hold to that position. I just want to recognize that. We're, we're not talking necessarily about just some heretical doctrine or something like that. We're, we're talking about brothers and sisters, and this requires us to deal with this with somewhat of theological humility. Uh, I believe I'm right on this, or I wouldn't be teaching this position, but I think that it calls... Uh, deep respect and, and, and humility as we discuss this with other people, recognizing that some of the nuances are very difficult to, to capture and to see. So we want to work with patience on this. The Arminian says that Christ died for every single person without exception. The Calvinist says that Christ died, that he stood as a substitute for the elect only. Now, here's where we need to start thinking very clearly about this topic. Contrary to, 
to what it may seem, I want us to see that both groups actually limit the atonement. It's still there. When the Calvinist uses the term limited atonement, what, what we mean by that is that it's limited in the, de the, de the design, the extent of the atonement, not its power. It's the extent, not the power. We believe that the atonement is unlimited in its power. It's of infinite power. It's, it's of infinite value, of infinite worth. And it is sufficient to atone for every single person who's ever lived. But the Calvinist does not believe that's the intention of the atonement. All right? So keep following with me here. The Cal Calvinist limits the death of Christ in its design in the sense of what it intends to accomplish. And so everyone says, boy, I can't believe the Calvinists would limit the atonement. Well, again, both positions have a limitation to the atonement. The Arminian also limits the atonement by limiting its power. The Arminian is not limiting, as we have seen, the atonement in its intention or its design or extent because they believe that Christ died for everyone in exactly the same way. But they are limiting the power or the efficacy of the atonement by their position. And here's why. Because when they assert that Christ actually died for every sin of every sinner who has ever lived, they also say that the benefit of that death does not apply to the sinner unless the sinner exercises their free will to accept it. In other words, Christ demonstrates his power by dying for every single sinner, but the sinner has the, the ability to limit the power of the atonement by the freedom of their own will. So in this position, even though Jesus Christ actually canceled their debt, that's not going to benefit them since they refuse to believe it. So they limit its power by their own will. The Calvinist limits the extent. The Arminian limits its power. As we work closer to answering the question, for whom did Christ die, I want to make another observation. If you will, just go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of John. This observation, I believe, serves as a presupposition for the doctrine of limited atonement. And that is the triune nature of God. When, when I first come to uh, kind of the, the day of reckoning, of, of reconciling this in my mind, this was where I started. I mean, th this was the triunity of God, understanding the nature of God and his will and purpose. When you understand the Trinity, when you understand the Godhead, that you start to understand that all three persons of the Trinity work in harmony, in will, and in purpose. And I believe this becomes critical for our understanding of the atonement. Think about the unity and the harmony of the triune God in creation. In Genesis 1, John 1, Colossians 1, we learn that all three persons were involved in the creation. They were all in perfect agreement. They were working in perfect harmony because God, by his very nature, is one. The creation proves that. But this is also revealed in the new creation, in salvation. The one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved and given credit in the great act of salvation. As Brad would have talked about last week in the doctrine of unconditional election, we see that the Father chose a specific people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, and he gave that group to his son. And there was perfect unity and, and perfect purpose behind this great act. 
And I believe it's this unity, this, this harmony, if you will, I believe it stands as one of the strongest arguments for a limited atonement in the Calvinistic sense. Because it's here you could start to answer the question, for whom did Christ die? Because we're technically just piggybacking off of what Brad talked about last week, those that the Father chose. If we say that the Father chose to save a certain group of people out of the entire human race by his grace, then we can rightly expect that the Son will act in perfect harmony with the Father's choice, with the Father's will, meaning that all those that the Father chose before the foundation of the world in Christ will be united to Christ. We have reason, sufficient reason, to believe that. That is to say that they will be saved by virtue of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension to the glory of God. In other words, think of it like this. The cross work of Christ is in perfect alignment with the choice work of the Father. We can just end the conversation right there. The cross work of Christ will be in perfect harmony with the choice work of the Father. And to see that, we're just going to look, I'm sure Brad looked at these, I didn't get to listen to his sermon, but I'm sure that you guys have examined these texts before. But to look at this unity, look at John 6, 37 through 40. John chapter 6. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son, looks on the Son, and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, we see the Father has given a people to the Son. It's not all people because we, we, we know that because not all people come to the Son, but all who the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. And next week you will learn why that is, I assume, that you will continue on with irresistible grace, but just to whet your appetite a little bit, it's because the Holy Spirit is also working in perfect harmony with the Father and the Son, with the will of the Father and with the will of the Son. He will come, he will regenerate, he will effectually call, he will irresistibly bring the sinner from death to life through the gift of the new birth. And so we see that, again, this triune harmony, the Spirit is working in perfect accord with the Father and the Son in salvation. The Father chooses a people, the Son accomplishes redemption for that people, and the Spirit applies that salvation to the same people, calls, unites them to that. So there is real triunity in the Trinity. There is really a harmony and an agreement in the work of the Godhead. Those given will come and be saved and be raised up and will be raised up on the last day. John chapter 10, just flip there very quickly. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Please notice that he does not lay down his life for the goats, but he does it specifically for the sheep. And then notice that not all are his sheep. 
Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. And that's a really interesting statement because it reverses the way we normally talk about this. He's not saying here that you're not part of my flock simply because you do not believe. But he says that they do not believe because they are not part of his flock. And I hope that you see that in the text there. In other words, they were not given to Christ by the Father. But all who are given to Christ from the Father are part of the flock. Those are the sheep that Jesus came to lay down his life for. John 17, just keep turning if you will, John 17, this high priestly prayer of Christ, which we'll come back to this a little later. John 17, 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse 9, I am not praying for the world, so I'm not interceding for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I, I just read them to, to help us to see this, this perfect harmony and agreement in the Godhead. The Father's people are Christ's people. One will, one purpose, one plan. The Father's will is that this group of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation will be saved. And the means by which he will secure this salvation is by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live perfectly, to die this substitutionary death for their sins. The father says to the son, you will accomplish their salvation. You will reconcile them back to me by virtue of your vicarious death. You will accomplish that which I am sending you to do. And for them, for this group of people, you will actually remove the enmity. You will actually remove the hostility. You will actually cancel the debt of sin that is against them. You will remove all of their sins. You will propitiate all of my wrath, and you will actually accomplish their salvation. They will be forgiven. They will be my people, and I will be their God. I chose them, and I will give them everything that they need for salvation, for life, and for godliness. I will bless them with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I will even give to them the gift of faith they need to be united to this wonderful work. I will impart new life to them. Why? Because they are mine. I chose them. That, that, that is what is going on here. This is the triune harmony at work in the accomplishment and the application of our salvation. So I hope we all see this harmony that I'm talking about there. Now, with that presupposition in mind, I want us to turn to the book of Hebrews where we'll spend the rest of our time this evening. So go ahead and turn there, if you will. So in light of this unity of the Father and Son, in light of this concept that we're looking at of the, the the limited nature of the design and extent of the atonement, I want to look at Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. And we're going to look at a lot throughout the book of Hebrews, and so I hope that you're familiar with your Bible so you can just keep turning along here and follow along. Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers 
by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In these opening verses of the book of Hebrews, we're introduced to the Son of God, who in his person fulfills all three offices that we find in the Old Testament, the prophet, priest, and king. He is the long-awaited prophet. In these last days, God has spoke to us by his Son. He is the fulfillment of the great Davidic king. He is the heir of all things. He is the great and merciful high priest whose sacrifice secures eternal redemption. And the text says that after making this purification for sins, that he sets down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he not only ascends here, he's not only ascended, but he went into what scripture calls his his session. He sat down. That is to say that he has finished this work. He has really finished it, not potentially finished it, but he actually made this purification for sins. Now, in in this letter, or or this, what I would argue is a sermon in Hebrews, the author wants to put Christ forward as not only the final and ultimate high priest, but as also the final and ultimate sacrifice. That's what's going on. Very quickly, Old Testament background. The duty of a high priest in the Old Testament was to go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, once a year on the Day of Atonement. Every year, once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place with the blood of a lamb. He would enter in this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat was, and he would sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat. He did this in order to make propitiation for the sins of, and listen carefully, for the sins of and only of the covenant people. The high priest would go in to make a propitiation for the people. This intercession, this sacrifice, was only for the covenant people. The high priest never went to the Holy of Holy to make intercession, to make propitiation for the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Philistines. But he did so to make propitiation for the covenant people, the the circumcised people, the people who had drawn near to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by faith. This day of atonement was not some universal atonement. It was not for the world, if you will, but he made it for the people who were in covenant with God. Stay awake. Are you with me? Is everyone following along where, where we are? The bloody sacrifice... In the intercession of the high priest, they were united. The intercession of the high priest and the sacrifice were united. They go together in providing atonement for the people. There, there, there is a, a, a harmony here. There was a, uh, it was for the purpose of reconciling a certain people to God. The high priest goes in to offer up this sacrifice on the day of atonement, but that's not all he's doing. He's also making intercession to God through this offering of this sacrifice. So the intercession is for people for whom the blood sacrifice was being offered up for. 
the same group of people. So the intercession and the sacrifice were united in purpose. Here's the thing. These sacrifices, this, this high priest, the author of Hebrews tells us, were only types. They, they were never perfect. They could never take away sins in the fullest sense. They were only foreshadowing. They were only a foreshadowing of the great high priest who was to come. And so I just wanted to give you this foundation for what we're about to read in Hebrews. And I'm just going to read this. I don't really feel like I have to make an argument uh, or exposit this. I, I think it, it tells what it is saying in and of itself. So just follow along with me. We're going to read much of the book of Hebrews, starting in chapter 2, verse 9. So go ahead and turn there, and I'll tell you when to turn to another chapter. Hebrews chapter 2. Keep in mind the unity of the work of the high priest and the intercession and the sacrifice. And now let's listen to this work of Christ as revealed in Hebrews. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given me, and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was in, indeed fitting that we should have such a, a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, for, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. You want to know the point? Here it is. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the, thing, of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have suffered, have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One more chapter, chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. To put all this together for us, there are children that God has given to Christ. Therefore, in bringing these many sons to glory, Christ must partake of flesh and blood. A body was indeed prepared for him in order that through that body he may fulfill the Father's mission to bring these many sons to glory. Who are these many sons that he's going to bring to glory? It's all that the Father has given to him. They are his brothers. He comes to take on that body like them in order to die. We see this over and over in the book of Hebrews. He came to die. He came to die to suffer death, to taste death. Why? Because it's through death that he will make propitiation for the sins of the people. And through that propitiation, he disarms the enemy that has the power of death. He disarms the enemy by canceling every record of debt, all the, the records of requirement that was against us. Through death, he's bearing the wrath, the judgment for the people, for his brethren. And in that death, he satisfies the full weight of the penalty, which is death. Therefore, in this atonement, in this death, we die. In his death, the debt is canceled. Through his blood, through his life, through uh, laying down his life as a sacrifice, he is tasting, he is facing, he is experiencing the wrath and the death that we deserved. And in doing so, he is making propitiation by a sacrifice. That's not all he's doing. For when he's resurrected from the dead, now he now ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he is now ever living to intercede on behalf of those in which he died for. Remember John 17. He's not, only, he's not praying for the world, but he's praying for who? Those that the Father has given him. He's not interceding for everyone. He's interceding specifically for those by which he sacrificed his life for, those that the Father gave him. And so now and forever, he makes before the Father an intercession that is in direct proportion to his death. His intercession is directly connected to the propitiation that he made. I hope you see that. That was the picture of the old. It is personified and perfected in the new. In the Old Testament, the offering 
and the high priest, they were not one. It was different. The intercession and the sacrifice was one, but the high priest wasn't the lamb. In the new covenant, the high priest and the sacrifice, they are one. Jesus is not just the high priest, but he is actually, in this atonement, the lamb. He's the sacrifice. And you can't separate the blood-atoning sacrifice of the lamb from the intercession of the high priest. You just can't do it. It's connected. There is a perfect harmony here in the atonement. And so when we start to think about this, and that's why I said you had to put on your thinking cap, to see the, the nature of the atonement in the book of Hebrews. When we start to see what this teaches about the death of Christ, we can't conclude, we cannot conclude that the Christ's death was intended for every single human being without exception. You just can't do it. But what we can conclude is that Jesus' death actually propitiated and removed God's wrath for someone, for some ones. If Christ died, and if Christ propitiates the sin of every single sinner who's ever lived, then Christ of necessity must be interceding for every single person. Therefore, every single person will be saved. Therefore, we must embrace the doctrine of universalism. But our argument is not that. Our argument is that the death of Christ was spe specific in its design. That it was not merely to make salvation possible, but the atonement was to make salvation actual. All that the Father gives to the Son, the Son dies for, and all the Son dies for, he intercedes for. We cannot divide this pro process. We cannot divide the unity of the Trinity in its purpose to save the elect. There's harmony here, and I hope you're able to see the beauty in this. Now, some of you might be thinking, like, I, I, I maybe see what you're saying, or I get it, or at least I'll continue to think about it and ask Dave about it later because I don't understand a word you just said. Whatever it is, you might be thinking, is this really that important? What, why are we talking about this? I mean... Uh, can't we just be preaching the gospel to people and, and go home or whatever? There's lots of things we could say in response to that. I mean, one is we want to worship God according to his revelation. I mean, we want to believe what the Bible says. When you peel back the layers of this doctrine, it takes us back to the reality that salvation is truly of the Lord. I mean, this, this is where it leads us. It, it, it brings out the, the reality that God has actually secured that salvation for us in the death of Christ. And then he guarantees this salvation by sealing it with the Holy Spirit. And these are truths that should fill our hearts with awe and wonder. It should drive us to, to worship and obedience. It should make us think amazing love. How can it be that he, my king, would die for me? It should develop in us a heart of worship. It should produce in us a, a heart of humility. It should drive us to personal holiness, knowing that we were bought with a price. But there's also other implications to this. There are so many, maybe even some in this room, who want to rescue God, if you will, from the Calvinist. Because when you hear things like the doctrine of election or limited atonement, it starts to sound like unfair. It starts to make God seem as if he is unjust. I mean, He's dying for that person, but not that person. I mean, you start to think these ways, and to some degree, rightfully so, we, we see, we understand. I've actually had people to tell me, and actually I even said it myself at one point, 
I would never serve a God like that. That's what I said before. And from here, as you start thinking on that level, you begin to argue not on the basis of theology, not on the basis of exegesis, but you begin to argue on the basis of emotion and purely emotion, and that's as far as the argument goes. But as we think about the implications of what I'm saying, the irony is this. When it comes to the issue of God's justice, it's not the Calvinistic position that any of us should take issue with. We've, we've laid it out. We, we, we see the logic of it. We see the harmony of it. But it's actually the Arminian view of the atonement that begins to call into question the justice of God. Because what you have in this position is God actually punishing the same sin twice. Think about this. In, the, in this view, if Christ really and actually dies for every single sin of every sinner who has ever lived, then there is no sin left and no just cause for God to condemn anyone. And this is why I wanted to focus in on Hebrews. For if Christ, by his dying was really doing what Hebrews says it, he was doing, propitiate, propitiating for us. If he was really serving as the wrath remover, that's what that word propitiation means, to shield from the wrath of God. If on the cross, Christ actually drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, to the last drop, who in the world is he doing it for? If he does it again for every single human being that's ever existed then God's wrath is of necessity propitiated, finished, extinguished, period, end of story. It's gone. What sins or what wrath is left? Again, someone, the Arminian, would say, well, Jesus died for their sins, but they can reject the offer. They can reject Christ. They can reject the free gift. To that, I would ask, is that a sin? Is unbelief a sin? And they would say, yes. And I would say, and you should say, in response, did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief? Did he actually die for the sin of unbelief? Or did he actually pay for all the other sins except that one sin that he just leaves dangling out here? I don't know how in the world that's going to be atoned for except by you in hell in some capacity. So I hope you begin to see the problem here. You have a God who charges people for a debt that he says he was, that was already paid. And I think this is problematic when you start to think about the justice of God. It begins to call in the question, the character of God, because there's a double jeopardy, there, there's a double payment going on. We're, we're, we're saying that the sinner is going to suffer the wrath of God that Jesus already suffered in their place. At the very least to say they're only dying for the sin of unbelief or they're only being punished for that. So I hope you see the problem. But on the other hand, the Calvinist in this position can truly say that Jesus Christ is a surety for his people. And because the atonement is perfect, for, forget limited atonement, forget whatever, let's, let's call it the perfect work of Christ. Because the atonement is perfect, because it is an actual atonement made for real people, for real names, we can truly believe and say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Not now, not ever. 
No possibility, no threat of it forever. Why? Because Christ actually secured the eternal reversal of my verdict by his death. That is why. We will not stand, those in Christ, those who Jesus laid down his life, will not stand in judgment for our sins because Christ actually did that in our place. My Savior, my sacrifice, my mediator, my high priest in the presence of God, he ever lives to intercede for me. And if you are in Christ, he ever lives to intercede for you. That is why you are in Christ in the first place. So don't hesitate, as I have most of my life, to believe in a limited atonement or to talk about limited atonement. Don't hesitate to say that it's not universal in its design. Say confidently, it is indeed limited. Not limited in its power, not limited in its ability to save, but limited in its scope. Simply because we believe that all that the Father gives to the Son are going to come to the Son. And all who come to the Son, Jesus will not lose a single one of them. Why is he so confident in that? Because he actually, truly, really laid down his life and atoned for their sins. And none for whom Christ died will end up in hell because he already suffered their hell for them. There is no double jeopardy in Christ's kingdom. He absorbed the wrath that was due our sins. And now, through the Holy Spirit, God is calling these people that Jesus died for, one by one, by name, to himself. And those that he laid down his life and atoned for, before the foundation of the world, their names was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He is calling them to himself. He's changing their heart. He's fixing their choosers. You know you have a chooser that's broke? Your chooser is broke. You need a new chooser. That's what God does in regeneration. He fixes your chooser, gives you the gift of repentance and faith. In, in exercising that gift of faith, he is connecting you to all of this work, uniting you with Christ, justifying you. He, he begins this process of sanctification. He is changing you, making you more and more like Jesus Christ. And he promises to one day, Romans 8, to glorify you, to raise you up on that last day. This is the reformed understanding of the nature of the atonement. And brothers and sisters, we should love the reformed understanding of the atonement because we believe we really have a high priest that really went into the Holy of Holies as himself and laid down his life to propitiate on behalf of our sins and so we live now as, as Christians in freedom, not in fear that one day we're going to have to give an account for our own sin or something like that. No, we believe Jesus died for our sin. I, I love the reading you guys did from Ligonier, and it talked about that, is that he really propitiated, fully God, fully man, come to this earth to live and die on behalf of real sinners, not just some concept. He died for people, and we should love that. But even more so than loving the doctrine of the atonement, we should love the God of the atonement. And that is the God that I pray we'll continue to worship this evening. Um, I don't know if Dave is going to come or who's going to come. I want to pray. Let's just pray. Father, we have so much to pray about and pray for and give thanks for.
as we just think about this atonement, uh, the security that is in the atonement. Uh, certainly there's complexity to some of it. I mean, there, there is precision. There is, is much work and, and logic that has to be kind of fleshed out at times. But there's such beauty and there's such joy and there's such encouragement in taking the time to think critically about your perfect work. Oh, that every single person in this room that, that, that ha- are in Christ, that we would just see and, and enjoy the reality of knowing that we really do have a sin bearer. And because Christ really drank our hell and our wrath, he has extinguished the wrath of God on our behalf, there is no more fear. We can live with reckless abandon. We could strive for obedience. We could fight in this world against sin, against our flesh, knowing that we're standing before you, not on the basis of our sin, but on the basis of your righteousness. And what joy and what freedom and what hope this limited atonement, this particular atonement gives to us as your children. I pray that by your spirit that you'd be a better preacher than I am tonight and apply this to my brothers and sisters here, that you would help us to go home and continue to think on this and to think about it. And if there's someone here this evening that does not know you, because of your purpose and plan, we have a boldness to call sinners to come. There's still room at the cross. You're still calling sinners. The great call that we have, God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. And that is our call this evening. And again, I pray that you would put your glory on display by saving someone, there's nothing more important that we have to think about than the condition of our soul before the almighty judge of the universe. And so I pray that every heart in this room would be carefully examining themselves. Will we stand and give an account for our own sin? And will we be found in the perfect atonement of Jesus Christ? It's in his name we pray. Amen.